0: Good, uh, we'd like to ask for your kind attention, some thoughts on practice. I'd like to give some consideration to the teaching on the Bojangas, the awakening factors. Footnote, I think it's best to do away with the notion of enlightenment. Okay, this is, um, let us just think of awakening, that's a much closer term for it. The notion of body, which is there. Um, The power of this analogy is very simple and straightforward. It is about waking up, waking up from a dream, waking up from uh, the sleep that gives rise to all kinds of perceptions, the sleep that gives rise to All that haunts us when we are unaware, when we are um, not resourced, when we are in the claws of parts of our minds that are not bright, that are not clear, that are not lucid, and that are not intelligent. So awakening as a metaphor is a lot more in line with the Buddhist teaching. It's also etymologically more in line with the term Bodhi. And correspondingly the Bojangas then uh, don't become factors of illumination or enlightenment. But actually they are factors that lead and factors that have something to do with awakening. this, uh, that term "enlightenment," I don't know what it does to you, but it somehow seems to insinuate that your light bulbs go on, you know? which, depending on how you, how bright you feel, this may be actually not even pleasant. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't always want to stare at bright lights. Um, But waking up is something I, I can profoundly relate to. Waking up from my conditioning. Waking up from identifying with my neediness. Waking up from catering to my fears and corroborating my madness. Waking up from seeking safety, happiness, gratification, comfort, solace where I can't find it, basically. Waking up from patterns that are unhelpful, that are proven, if only by anecdotal evidence, that are proven not working in making me more complete, more content, more intelligent, more happy, more wakeful. So, waking up from that actually is quite attractive to me. To be honest with you, under all conditions. <laughs> yeah. Well um, that holds a lot of promise. I see this is the great vision of the Buddha, yeah? This is this is his vision for which underpins which underpins all of his teaching and which is so deplorably lacking in Western culture, particularly. Yeah. Our health systems have nothing to do with health. They're basically money distribution systems. You know, for, at best, um, allotting particular procedures in particular institutions, and particular types of professions, a certain amount of money. But if pressured, what they actually have to say about health, they're, you know, poignantly silent. East and West. Um, that notion of awakening is so poignantly absent in, in our economy. It's so poignantly absent in our, in our polity. Utilitarianism will not get us there. This is quite clear. So there is a vision there in Buddhist teaching. Um, And I've always felt that um, my appreciation for psychologists, both East and West, and psychotherapies, which are primarily West, um, my appreciation of this has come out of my contemplative experience. This is unusual. Most people who are... Uh, Trying to meet, bring the two together have always, not always, but on the most part it's basically people coming from the psychologies and the therapies who get interested in Buddhism and contemplative practice. For me, it has been the other way around. After much determined contemplative practice, um, even contempt for psychology and psychotherapies, as the netherworlds of the mind, Um, I have come to a profound appreciation of both psychology as the attempt to understand dynamics of the mind and psychotherapy as an attempt to translate some of that understanding into an individual, particular, specified, relational type of work that helps uh, tease out the the growth possibilities of a mind. And I've always felt that um, The vision of awakening is one of the great. It's the great background in front of which all the work takes place. Um, Unfortunately, psychotherapy doesn't have a lot to say about health or sanity either, with the exception of a few daring individuals who have tried to come up with a positive psychology. Not just yesterday, it has happened quite a bit earlier, but they're fairly marginal. There's a few good individuals out there who do happiness research, who do compassion research, who who try to identify positive psychology. Um, I don't want to downplay this, but it's marginal. The majority of the mental health theme and the notion of mental health Uh, as it is popularized in our largely Western societies, is remarkably bereft of a big vision of happiness. The unified field theory of happiness I'm still waiting for. So I think it's good to look at some of those awakening factors because (laughs) I think that's where Buddhism really has something to offer. It offers a horizon for human growth that in my books makes my heart a lot more hopeful when I do my work, both as a teacher and as a psychotherapist, and frankly as a human being and a a follower of the Buddha. Um, I find I take heart in a vision for humankind that insists, despite our documented ignorance, despite our dogged attempts to follow greed and hatred, Um, Any look into politics, any look into our history, really gives us a pretty grim lowdown on our species. Um, And yet, there is a vision for growth. There is somebody upholding the possibility of waking up from all the stuff we have been doing. Possibly, not just in this life, but in previous lives, in generations. And um, some things actually seem to change. Even in this life. So holding up this possibility seems crucial. You cannot put awakening somewhere onto a map of developmental psychological progress. Like you cannot put the Brahma Viharas on there. Nor can you put the refuges on there. With all due respect, I have a fondness for uh, developmentally, psychological, real approaches to contemplative life. I'm the, least, I'm the last one to uh, que- question the value of this. But there are things which are not part of the, a developmental project. A refuge is not part of a developmental project. It's not something you kind of grow into and then grow out of. It's something you only can deepen. And the same with the Brahmaviharas, it's not, you kind of do that up to a certain point and then you grow out of this kind of Brahmavihara stuff, like you grow out of your sandpit habits or so, once you've established how to build castles and hold your little plastic shawl. And so you don't grow out of developing Brahmaviharas. Awakening is not a developmental project. It's not something you're going to leave behind at some point and then you continue busily living your life just awakened. Yeah, it's a bigger vision. The horizon is bigger there. And I think it's, it's necessary to acknowledge this. The awakening factors, the Bojangas, are a strange set of qualities. Some of them seem to be things you're doing and some of them seem to be things you're getting, if you look at them. Yeah. Sati is, seems to be something you're doing. Well, although many of us secretly hope that sati is something that happens if I just kind of, if I behave. You yeah? if I sit properly, if I breathe properly, if I um, mm, wrap up my thoughts neatly. Yeah? If I have the right technique and right strategy, then sati happens to me. And then it kind of gradually gets sweeter and sweeter and distills itself in a sort of automagic way into samadhi and then things get really bright. um, if I read those old texts both the the suttas and the commentaries it is obvious that these texts think that sati is something we do it is something it's not a state it's something we we keep doing Thus, my insistence that Probably the closest analogy to the activity of sati, is the activity of relating. Although this is not a translation, this is simply an analogy. So, a relationship is something you're not just having, you know. You don't just have a marriage suddenly, and then this kind of, you give it a good shove, you know, (laughs) in love, and then it just kind of runs on, you know, smoothly. That doesn't seem to be the case, Uh, or you enter into a work relationship, or into friendship, or you have a kid, or you become somebody's disciple, or student, or mentor. Generally these things take some effort. Sangha. For example, most people who are not who feel they're not part of a, some big sangha, they may think, of, uh, "This is dangerous. I don't want to have anything to do with people. They just keep telling me what I suppose, what I'm supposed to be doing, and I preferably don't want people to tell me this." Or you think, "I would love a sangha, but unfortunately, I don't have one. So nobody's there to take me up. Nobody's there to take care of me. Nobody's there to let me in, um, or there is just nobody." Yeah? I'm just so strange on this planet that basically I can't hope to find anybody of my ilk. Sangha is hard work. It's, it's, it comes about through a firmed relationship. A relationship that is not necessarily based on sympathy. Not necessarily based on mutual attraction. Not necessarily based on liking. I've lived the larger part of my adult life in monastic communities, and uh, all of them call themselves Sangha, and it has felt quite different in there. Some of them are kind of big communities, and some of them are small communities. Sometimes it was just one other. Um, And it has been just everything you would expect communities to be like, you're part of, you know. Sometimes it has been sweet and wonderful, and profound sense of belonging, and held. And, and sometimes it has not been wonderful. Yeah, It has been difficult. Sometimes it seemed so easy to be part of this. And sometimes it seemed to be hard work to be part of this. It's something you do. Sangha and Sati alike are something you do. It's something you affirm. It's something you keep coming back to and say. Look, this is, this is what we're doing here now. This is intention. This is attention. This is application. Yes, sometimes this feels good, then I'm happy to be here. Yes, sometimes this does not feel good. This, I'm a little less happy to be here, but look, I'm still here. Yeah. Um. So, sati in the text is a sankara, as you know. It's a volitional quality. It's not just something you're graced with, yeah, when the thoughts have finally left and, you know, the clear sky is what remains behind. Uh, sati is an activity. It is something we are told is set up, something that administers. Sati is uh, referred in one of the texts as a... Um, one of them speaks of Sati as salt. Like salt brings out the taste, the flavor in all curries, sati uh, establishes reality in our relationship to all things. For example, it is capable of holding the lakanas, the characteristics, impermanence, impersonality, unsatisfactoriness, or conditionality. Um, Often these are things we don't necessarily want to see. What we want to see is the promise, The promise is um, reliability instead of impermanence. The promise is happiness, gratification instead of unsatisfactoriness and contingency. And the promise is meanness, safety for my sense of self. Please do not jeopardize my sense of self. The great number of feeling safe. I'm all for safety, but you know, if... My safety entails that you corroborate my self perception then my demand for safety is basically my demand that you agree with me on how I see the world. This is not safety this is ignorance so the awakening fact is um, continue and You know, appropriately, the second of those awakening factors is about investigation. Having established the relationship, having engaged in the activity of sati, set it up, administer to things. (laughs) Oh, that's another interesting example. Sati is likened to the minister that for the king, which is obviously the mind. uh, Sati is as a minister to his king and whatever the king intends to do. The minister tries to be useful in the king's service. He tries to address the king's concerns. So the, the minister connects, the minister networks, the minister feels um, uh, from the realm what's happening there. The minister gets in touch. The minister uh, translates some of the king's wishes into, the, into respective action. That's an interesting image. So sati in the service of things. Uh, one of the, uh, the word upatana in patana is connected to a term that is used for somebody who is in the service of somebody else, of somebody who looks after somebody. Um, if you're Uh, living in a monastic life, then there will be a time when you will be looking after a teacher, when you're trying to become a teacher's hands, basically. You're trying to become uh, somebody who looks after this man or this woman's needs. Uh, Depending on what that teacher wishes, this may be anything from uh, taking care of his or her washing, taking care of um, writing duties, uh, right down to putting toothpaste on toothpaste on his toothbrush, yeah in Thailand you we actually we washed our teachers literally i've you know i 've scrubbed sweet ninety year old gentlemen literally you know not just me <laughs> four others <laughs> yeah. which this is not quite uh, i think if your upbringing has been North American, I would expect you generally don 't do this sort of thing with uh, revered teachers. But if you've grown up in Thailand, this is completely normal. It's completely uh, this is appreciated by all participants. Um, the younger ones generally appreciate this because this is in a, uh, uh, an easy way of being in a relaxed and informal manner with a, a teacher. The teacher may appreciate this because this is also a possibility for him to be informal in ways... You know, he's not sitting on the high seat and you're not kind of in, in um, information flight somewhere at the back of the line if you happen to be a young monk. So this would be a, a moment of authenticity. Um, it may mean that you, you put yourself in, in a situation where you serve, where you try to help this person to hold her role or his role as much as this person wishes and uh, in the pe- peculiarity uh, this role entails. Yeah? And Sati in this job is a good, is, I think is a good image. Sati does many different things, as happened many different things in a relationship. There isn't just always sweetness. You know, sometimes you you, you clean out the g- garage together, you know, it's not just romantic. <clears throat> or. Maybe it turns romantic when you clean out the garage, who knows? Yeah, but there are a range of different things that sati is capable of doing. One of, one of them, and this is taking us to the next one, is investigation, dhamma Vichaya. The turning over of things, the in, the examining of things. Usually that entails slowing down, stopping, taking stock of perceptions, verifying perceptions remember one of the points about Dittiyupadana when we spoke on attachment and grasping the other night. Um, One of the reasons for such attachments to views is not the bloody-minded acquisition of ideology, that's sometimes the case, but most of our views seem to come together through lack of circumspection, through lack of actual questioning, through laziness of thinking, through carelessness in attending, through simply believing what somebody has told us, or or believing what our prejudices or our conditioning would make us to do. Uh, it takes more work to not believe something than to believe it. That's very simple. So Dhamma Vijayam is a kind of work. It means investigating things, not just on the basis of, oh, I like that, let me look closer at it, but... I don't like that. I may not like that. This this disturbs me. I find that baffling. I find that unattractive. I find that this is boring. Where is the good bit? Can we get on with this? You know. And I can begin to slow and identify both. What is there? What is happening here? Can this be in any way altered? Within a relationship, it can be altered. Sati acting as that relating part of my mind can alter the the content of that relationship. So Dhamma Vijaya is capable of often quite powerful and quite dramatic little changes. You You turn your attention to something that you don't like, only to find after a short while, it has actually stopped being unpleasant. Or, what was initially the statement of my perception is not the whole story, there is something more there. And that Dhamma Vijaya is something that the Buddha really emphasized. He emphasized it as much as he emphasized energy, effort, application, giving one's health, putting one's heart into things. He really, and this is distinguishes him very strongly from his contemporaries, Um, he emphasized the human mind's capacity to genuinely turn its resources and its intelligence to a process of investigation. In Many ways you could say wisdom, that's where wisdom begins. It's with a question, it's with a stopping, taking stock and examining more slowly is a huge power. Early Buddhist teaching is full of encouragements to do such investigations. I've always found it as one of the most inspiring attitudes of the Buddha to, In the fifth century BC to say when the key to freedom, the key to happiness, the key to awakening lies in Establishing good relationships to inspiring people, that's what primes your heart for learning. And the other key is investigating the nature of your own mind. To be precise, uh, within this body, within this fathom long body, with its um, perception and its consciousness, turn inward, your capacity to understand and examine. And this will be the key to freedom. Not your belief in God, not you believe in the benevolent universe, not you believe in um, some um, fertile emptiness uh, of which you may or may not be part. Um, not something that you behave now and then you get reward later on in the next life, uh, but actually turning the intelligence available learning to refine your capacity to understand to hold to attend to and turn this as a resource back to your own process of experiencing it and within understanding your own nature your own mind your own heart within this turning inward freedom is possible happiness is possible awakening is possible I find it still to the day a very, very inspiring statement. I don't need to be fixed by a god. I don't need to stave off demons. I don't need uh, to be safe against uh, mortality or against um, human beings that may not like me. Or um, I may not need to have stuff to protect me against the... um, the perils of, you know, the lokya dhamma, the, uh, the worldly winds, as the Tibetan tradition says. So this investigation is huge; it's a huge part, and that's where we, as soon as we have some satti, that's what we use. And then the next one is energy. Nothing happens without energy. One of the statements the Buddha makes about his teaching, when cornered, what he is teaching, then he says, I am a karmavadin, I teach an ethical conditionality, things you do have consequences. I am a vibhanjavadin, I am one who discerns, I am willing to acknowledge differing components in experience. Vibhajati means to sp- sp- split, to take apart things. Um, and I am a, a virya vadin. I am one who preaches the value of effort, the value of application, the value of dedication, the value of giving myself to it. He didn't say I'm a letting go vadin or I'm a mindfulness vadin. Or, I didn't say that. So, more about this on another occasion. I want to read a piece of text here, which I hope you know. And um, I truly hope this is boring to you, so that I can be sure that you have heard it and completely internalized. In this is, If this is the case, I beg your pardon. If not, then it's probably worth listening to. It's <coughs> in the Bojangas Amyuta, in the um, group of the Grouped Discourses on Awakening. And it's part of Buddha's program here to prepare his monks uh, for the meeting with the wanderers of other sects. Yeah. You remember the Buddha was, uh, uh, had quite a bit of competition in his day. Uh, in, by his contemporaries, he was very likely to be seen as one amongst many teachers that outside of the rabbinical established religion was teaching his particular what he calls Dhamma and Vinaya, his teaching and a discipline. Um, we seem to be struggling a bit here in the West with acknowledging the second part of that compound. That the notion of Vinaya seems to have a lot less popularity than the notion of Dhamma. Yeah? Most of us quite happily are but Uh, The Vinayavad in part, that seems to take a little longer to take root. Uh, So his own way of referring to what he did and what he taught was he was teaching the Dhamma Vinaya. And the Vinaya is not just monastic rules, it's not just monastic discipline. He thought that Vinaya, that which leads out, Vineti, uh, is applicable also to people who are not living monastic lives. And the package of what he offered was, in his own words, the Dhamma and Vinaya, rather than just the Dhamma. So he prepares his monks here. When the wanderers of other sects speak to us, they should be asked. Yeah? Friends, uh, when the mind becomes sluggish, which factors of awakening it is untimely to develop on that occasion? And which factors of awakening is it timely to develop on that occasion? Mm. And then comes... Um, being asked thus, those wanderers would not be able to reply and further they would meet with vexation for what reason? because that would not be within their domain I do not see anyone because in this world with its devas, Mara and Brahma in this generation with its ascetics and Brahmins its devas and humans who could satisfy the mind with an answer to these questions except a Tathagata or a disciple of a Tathagata or one who has heard it from them. So, in other words, this sounds pretty uh, confident. (laughs) Um, um, Basically, what he is telling his disciples here is, look, um, you will be questioned what you're doing. You will have to refer yourself to me in some way. And I'm now giving you the sales pitch. You know The unique selling point of this teaching and doctrine is, and it doesn't take me to, to hand that message, actually. You can be my disciples or even one who has heard from my disciples. Yeah? And then comes the rather psychologically apt explanation when to do which awakening factor. First, the sluggish mind. On an occasion... Monks, when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the factor, uh, the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of unification, and the awakening factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, because, and it is difficult to arouse it with those things. So we are told when the mind is sluggish, not to uh, try to practice pasadi, tranquility, not to try to practice samadhi, unification, and not to practice the awakening factor of equanimity, upeka. So when your mind is sluggish, this is not the moment to be compassionate and equanimous. This is the moment to do something. Suppose, now the analogy... A man wants to make a small fire flare up. If he throws wet grass, wet cow dung and wet timber into it, sprays it with water and scatters soil over it, would he be able to make that small fire flare up? No, venerable sir. So too, because on that occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of tranquility, unification and equanimity. The timely approach for a sluggish mind Uh, Predictably, uh, on occasion, because when the mind becomes sluggish, it is timely to develop the awakening factor of discernment of states, dhamma the awakening factor of energy, Virya, and the awakening factor of rapture, Piti. For what reason? Because the sluggish mind responds easily to those things. Suppose man, suppose because a man wants to make a small fire flare up, if he throws dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry timber into it, blows on it, and does not scatter soil over it, would he be able to make that small fire flare up? Yes, Venerable Sir, so too, so too. Uh, practice basically awakening factor of dhamma when the mind is sluggish, practice the awakening factor of energy when the mind is sluggish, and practice the awakening factor of piti of rapture, when the mind is sluggish. And then <clears throat> the excited mind you yeah. on an occasion monks when the mind becomes excited it, it is untimely to develop the awakening factor of discernment of states the awakening factor of energy the awakening factor of rapture for what reason because the mind if excited um, is difficult to calm down with these things suppose A man wants to extinguish a great bonfire. If he throws dry grass, dry cow dung, dry timber into it, blows on it and does not scatter soil of it, would he be able to extinguish that great bonfire? No, sir. So too, so too. Again, the repetition. To not practice when the mind is excited. dhamma Vijaya, investigation of states. Virya, energy. And piti, rapture. The excited mind, the timely fact is um, we are encouraged. Suppose, monks, a man wants to extinguish a great bonfire and so forth, throws wet grass, wet cow dung, wet timber on it, sprays it with water, scatters soil of it. Would he be able to extinguish the great bonfire? Yes, yes. Um, and the, the fact is, so too, on that occasion, when the mind becomes excited, it is timely to develop the mind, the awakening factor of tranquility, passati, the awakening factor of unification, samadhi, the awakening factor of equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind, if excited, is easy to calm down with those things. That seems a rather hopeful statement, isn't it? In view of some of... <coughs> By my own experiences, I don't want to talk for you here. Interesting, the last sentence, but mindfulness, because I say, is always useful. Yeah. Very interesting statement. So, uh, there is some, I sense, uh, some re- realism in this uh, uh, little passage, which acknowledges that well-intended practitioners sometimes experience sluggishness of mind and excitement of mind, as uh, you have uh, heard yesterday, um, or not the, the day before yesterday when I spoke about the visit to the nuns. There was also an acknowledgement of meditators being assailed by feverish bodily states, by distraction of mind or by sluggishness. Seems, seems uh, not to be an invention of the Western world. yeah. And it's heartening to see that the Buddha acknowledges that some parts of his teaching are not always applicable. Yeah? So um, what does that mean in practice? It means we need to discern. You know, one of, Again, it's relational. We need to find out what actually is happening. And without our willingness to find out, if we just sit here and want something or don't want something, this is a pretty uh, safe approach to most definitely not get it, or not get rid of it. It entails, that seems to emerge again and again, it entails that we are willing to relate to what's happening in our bodies and in our minds, only when we're willing to receive things as they are. Not because we consent to how they are, but we understand that unless we are willing to meet them as they are, there will be very little possibility for transformation. And obviously, once we have established what is happening to us, what qualities are here, not just what qualities are absent, sometimes we err a bit on the side of deficiency, um, then we have a better chance to realistically counteract or strengthen things. The tradition is very clear. Bhavana entails the cultivation of wholesome things that are already there bringing to fruition wholesome things that are already there. Uh, Bhavana entails the bringing into life of wholesome things that are not yet there. In other words, um, there's something we need to do for this to happen. Bhavana also entails the staying away from things that are not there and we know are unwholesome, and for not feeding the unwholesome stuff that is already there and trying to let it take its course till it disappears. Not feeding it or in, in some instance, we are actively encouraged to not give our consent, consent to not allow it to take root in the mind. Yeah. Good, please uh, ponder this. Uh, the rest uh, will do some other time. <laughs> Please uh, stretch your legs. Are we seeing people this afternoon? And there won't be a talk tonight.